0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I'll pray for us while you turn there. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for... The way that you love us, the way that you think for us, the way that you provide for us. And one of the major primary ways that you provide for us is your word, um, your law, even though sometimes it's hard to understand and sometimes it's hard to obey. But I pray, Father, uh, that this morning as we think about you and your character and your word, we really would see all of your word, even the hard, complex parts of it, as a gift, as a blessing. Uh, more of a blessing, less of a burden. Lord, make us into the people that you want us to be, uh, that love you, that rest in you, and are motivated by your goodness to us to live lives for your glory and your pleasure. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we looked at the Mosaic Law. Okay, so um, let's just, let's look at part of it. Okay, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start with a part that I think we all remember. This is Uh, the end of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment itself. Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then skip down to verse 24, just a few verses later. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings. And your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And then just a couple of verses down further. Remember the chapter and verse divisions weren't there in the original. Chapter 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years. And the seventh, he shall go f- out free for nothing. Now, just a little summary. Not even not a summary. Just, just a little kind of spot-checking of the Mosaic Law. Are these laws still applicable to us today? Are they still in force for us today? Okay, I have a no. Who wants to go with no? Show of hands. We're all going to participate here. You get, And you're going to have to vote. You can't abstain. Okay, so who wants to say no? They don't apply to us anymore. Sure. Yeah. All right, I got three or four. Okay, okay. all right, we're getting more, Austin. I don't know, all right? All right, anybody want to go with a different answer? Oh, Austin, a no. went no. He went, did you go no, Austin? Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to go with a different answer? All right, Tyler, are you going for yes? I'm going to go for in between. Okay, in between. Connor, is that... Okay. All right. So, we have no and in between. Okay. Uh, so, it, in between is the closest, right? Because... Don't covet. Is that still applicable to us? Yes, absolutely. Go build an altar to me. Is that still no? Right, not literally. Uh, if you buy a Hebrew slave, you get to keep him six years, but on the set, right? No, nobody's doing. Nobody. I don't think anybody in the whole world is doing that anywhere. Not even in Israel. So how do we understand? When God gave the Mosaic Law to the nation of Israel, there really were three parts. Okay, and this is this is where probably most reformed commentators, but not all, would land. Is there's three parts to the Mosaic Law: the moral law, which the best summary of that would be the Ten Commandments; the civil law, which would be more about uh, how you interact with other people, things about if you're going to have a slave, it, it was regulated. Right? If your child is too disobedient, you stone him. If there's an adulterer, you stone him. Right? If somebody steals a sheep, you have to pay them back four times. But I think if you steal an ox, you have to pay them back five times. All those type of laws. And then there was the ceremonial law, right? the way that they were to worship. Now, part of what makes it hard to always see that, and why some people say, no, 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 that's not true, is it, oftentimes it's kind of jumbled together, right? Have you ever been read I was doing it this morning Am my read through the Bible plan. I'm in Exodus right now. And so I'm just a couple of chapters ahead of this. And as I'm reading, you know, there's some things that as I'm reading, I'm convicted. Like they, they personally speak to where I'm living. Some of the things they say. And then like the next verse is, and don't ever boil a, a kid in its mother's milk, you know, of a goat. And you're like, that's really weird, right? I got no clue what to do with that. It's like, I'm I'm not convicted because I don't think I've ever done that before in my life. I've never boiled any goat in any kind of milk, okay? But it's like, why is that, like, right next to something that seems like it is very applicable from the moral law? Here's, I think, the best way to understand it. The moral law is what is central, right? We started with this. What is the law? And we said we're probably going to talk about the moral law. It's, it's, this, this is going to go all the way back to the first week of class. We're talking about what is the moral law? How do we define it? What really is the moral law? a revelation of the heart of god right don't kill because god's a creator he loves life don't commit adultery because god's faithful he loves loyalty so then what is the ceremony on the civil law think about this even with with moral biblical law that we have today okay You have to learn, I mean, part of what it really means to be a mature believer is you learn how to take biblical principles and apply them in very concrete situations, right? A New Testament moral law would be don't get drunk with wine, right? Ephesians 5.18. If you're going to be working with college students and high school students, you better know that one, all right? Do not get drunk with wine. But here's the problem. You get to be 21. You want to have a social drink. And you got two friends, maybe, that go out on Friday night, to local Applebee's. They're going to have a, an adult beverage or two, right? And you got one of them that's more kind of Jacob style, and it's like, I think he only weighs a buck oh five, right? And then you got this other guy that played linebacker at Alabama, and he's like, at least 285. The guy that barely weighs 100 pounds. If he has two beers, he might need to start thinking about, Thou shalt not get drunk with wine, right? Okay? The linebacker from Alabama, he might have four beers before he even starts thinking about that. Does that make sense? Now, listen, I, I'm using that as an example. There's a principle. Do not get drunk with wine. If you want to be serious about applying the moral law in your life, you have to think through the personal application. Does that make sense? Now, some of you are like, What in the heck does this have to do with mosaic law? I think part of what the Lord was doing said here's the moral law and listen the Ten Commandments really were set apart God spoke them out loud to all the people remember that not just to Moses a lot of this stuff just went to Moses and then Moses downloaded but they heard the Ten Commandments God wrote it with his own finger in stone and then after it got shattered it got written down again it got put into the Ark of the Covenant I mean the Ten Commandments the moral law was definitely separated out and made special from the rest of the law So then what is this whole ceremonial law? It was God saying, for the nation of Israel, which was the Old Testament covenant people of God, it was the Old Testament church, right? The Old Testament congregation. God said, right, the Ten Commandments. The first table primarily focuses on what? The first half of the Ten Commandments primarily focuses on what? Relationship with God. Yeah, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind strength. And the second table primarily focuses on what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So the ceremonial law is God saying, let me give you something really specific application in your time and your place about how you worship me, how you love me, how you honor me. You build a tabernacle. You build altars. You do sacrifices. This is how you love me. This is how you honor me in this time, and this day, in this culture. And the civil law was here's how you love your neighbor. Let me get real practical. Let me get real applicable for you. It was like case law. Here's what it really looks like. If you really want to repent and you stole something, you want to be a, a loving, repentant thief, here's how you do it. You took one sheep, you give them four back. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Israel in the Old Testament was a church in infancy, so to speak. So it's kind of like God said, i got to spell it out for you guys. You're, right? Uh, most of you are not parents yet. Okay. But one of the things you'll learn... When your kids are really young, there tend to be a lot more rules. My oldest now is 21. I mean, he, he's, he's that close to being totally out from under my authority. Right? Every once in a while he's like, you know, I'm an adult now, Dad. I'm like, well, you know, technically what an adult means in my world is you pay all your own bills. So you sure you're an adult? And he's like, okay, I don't want to be a total adult yet, Dad. I'm like, right. it's coming soon enough. Trust me. So... I have a lot, I mean, I have a 15 year old daughter. Let's just go there. I have more rules on my 15 year old daughter than I do on my 21 year old son. I almost have no rules on him. Why? Because he's matured, he's drunk deeply, and hopefully he's made them to some degree his own, and I don't have to micromanage him anymore. But my 15 year old little girl, I do have to kind of spell it out for her a little bit more. Does that make sense? There's a curfew and things like that that he doesn't have. That, in a sense, is what God was doing in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. But we live now. So what does that mean for us? And here's what we want to look at. How Christ fulfilled the law. How Christ specifically fulfilled the Mosaic law. Right? So, um, he was a Jew. He grew up under this Mosaic law. He grew up when it was still in force. So, let's flip over to the New Testament and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. famous verse that I think most of us will probably be familiar with near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. When a Jewish person said the law and the prophets, what did they mean? The, Old the entire Old Testament. Okay. Don't think I came to do away with all that. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That was one of the goals of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was to fulfill all of the Old Testament commands. Now you say, well, practically speaking, how did he do that? Well, he did it in at least three ways. He fulfilled the moral and the ceremonial and the civil law, and we'll see how. So go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, the baptism of Jesus. This is when he comes to John. Remember, and John's like, hey, this is a baptism for repentance, I don't need to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. I'm the great Old Testament prophet. I'm the greatest there's ever been. And yet when I get before you, I need to repent. And Jesus says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I'm trying to fulfill the law. And if this is what the nation of Israel is supposed to be doing right now, then I need to do it. I'm going to get baptized. Sinclair Ferguson has a great sermon on this where he says, imagine, whether you believe in sprinkling or dunking, doesn't really matter, okay? All these people coming down to the river to be baptized by John, right? And it was for the repentance of sins. And what is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing the washing away of their sins, the cleansing. So in some sense, imagine if there was like a gigantic swimming pool and there was all these people coming back from the beach... Covered in kind of the sand and the seawater and the seaweed, and they're doing what you're not supposed to do at, you know, hotels and resorts and stuff like that. You know, you're supposed to shower before you get in the pool, right? But all these people are like, I'm not going to shower. I'm just going to jump into the pool and wash away all the grime from the sea. And if you went and jump in, in some sense, you're bathing in all their grime, right? So when Jesus goes down to the river, metaphorically, what is that river full of? All the sins of all the people. And he's saying, I'm baptized in this. I'm identifying with sinners. Even at the very beginning of his mission, he knew why he was there. It was like he was becoming one of them. Now, look what happens exactly after this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Total side note, but a helpful one. God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But God will test us. And one of the ways he tests us is by leading us to places where we can be tempted. Here can be a very helpful way to think about temptation. I mean, I think often, sometimes, I know I have felt this way, I wonder if you have. When you're struggling with kind of the same old temptation, you feel like you're stuck in some place where like it keeps coming up again, like, God, why are you doing this to me? You're sovereign. Why are you putting me in these situations? But sometimes a positive way to think about it is you're testing me, God. You're testing me to stretch me, to grow me, but also this, I need to look at this as not just to grin and bear it and get through it. But this is a this is a chance for me to show my love to you. This is a chance for me to show my loyalty to you. And that way, even the test becomes a good thing, even though it's hard. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So he's spiritually strong, but he's physically weak. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, before we kind of dive into that for a second, does this remind you of anything else, this little story? Yeah, the Garden of Eden. One of Paul's nicknames for Jesus is the second Adam. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan comes, three different temptations, three different attempts at deception. Did God really say? Right? Did God really mean? Is there really going to be consequences? Is God really good? Is God really loving? Can you really trust God? Is he really a good father providing the best stuff for you? And Eve starts out pretty good. No, no, that's not what God said. God said we, you know, we could eat from all the trees, just not this one. And then she starts giving in because Satan persevered in the fight, and she didn't. Jesus, right, is better. He's different. He presses back every time. He quotes Scripture every time. He perseveres, right? Uh, 1 John chapter 2, see either verse 15 or 16. For all that is in the world... The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Those are like the three streams of all temptation. It's either our physical appetites, sex, drugs, drunkenness, gluttony, oversleep, whatever it may be. Or it's the lust of the eyes. It's all the stuff. I want more money, more shoes, more cars, more houses. Or it's the boastful pride of life. I want fame. I want reputation. I want to be somebody. And those three temptations were in the garden. Remember when she finally decided to take the fruit? It looked good. It was going to taste good. and It was going to make her wise like God. And now Satan's coming with the same things. Hey, you're hungry. I know your daddy in heaven hadn't told you to break the fast yet, but you should. You could. you got the power. Why don't you do it? Okay? Jesus resist. Okay? Then, look at this. I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. You can be the ruler. You can have it all. All the fame, all the fortune. I mean, he's tempting him in those three different ways, and every time Jesus is resisting, he uses scripture. Satan tries to use scripture against him, but the real kind of the the temptation underneath the temptation—this is always the case—is to try to drive a wedge between father and son. I mean, essentially, it's hey, you know what? You're the son of God. Don't look like your father's taking care of you very well. You look like a homeless loser to me. You're hungry. You don't have any friends, you do any followers, you do any fame, you're a nobody. Why don't you take matters into your own hands and fix this? Essentially, I'll provide for you better if you trust me and follow me. I'll be a better father. That's exactly what he was saying to Adam and Eve, right? God is really holding back on you. You can't trust him. Don't be a good, submissive child to him. Break the rules and get what you need with your strength. Rise up, take power. They bought the lie. The Lord Jesus didn't. He won the battle. Now, if you read this same story in Luke chapter 4, it ends just a little bit different. Anybody remember Luke chapter 4, verse 11? When it says, Satan left him, it adds in a little phrase. For a more opportune time, he's coming back. It's not like Satan just said, oh, darn it, you know. Reverend Barker used to have this illustration he would use, and he may have gotten it from somebody else, but he's the one that I heard using. and I thought it was great. He said, imagine that the way that Satan did temptation. is kind of like he had a dial. You know, like when you used to have dials in your car for the radio, you know, 1 to 10 for the volume. And, you know, he could kind of go 1 to 10 on the level of temptation. Well, how does it work for most of us, as Christians even? Like Satan turns up the temptation to level 1. We're like, I'm not going to do it. I memorized a verse. God help me. And then Satan says, turn it up to temptation too. And we're like, okay, whatever, I give in. I'll get forgiven. Well, Jesus never gave in. So what do you think Satan was doing? He was looking for every moment of weakness to crank it up to level 10. Every moment of hunger. Every moment of weakness, tiredness, loneliness maybe. Right? Right? And Jesus at every point is saying, I'm not going to do it. Flip over really quickly to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Such a powerful verse. Verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do Not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Man, that's a powerful word. That'll change your life to the degree that sinks in, won't it? Now listen, don't interpret that verse in a wooden literal fashion. This is what I mean by that, okay? I used an alcohol illustration Earlier, I'll use another one here, right? What if you say, from my fraternity days in college, my biggest temptation is, you know, to drink too much Kentucky bourbon. I just got to stay away from Kentucky bourbon. I guess Jesus must have been tempted with Kentucky bourbon one day too. It's like, they didn't have Kentucky bourbon 2,000 years ago. So not literally every single exact temptation, but the three rivers of temptation, right? He wrestled with all of them. At least in the same seed form. And he defeated everyone. So, guys, let this verse just minister to you for a second. When you come back to Jesus, either still struggling with the same old temptation, the besetting sin in your life, or maybe you come back because you failed for the 10,000th time, the primary emotion that the Lord Jesus feels towards you is not anger, it's not frustration, it's sympathy. Right? <clears throat> Jesus is not a disembodied spirit today. You realize that? There is a physical Jewish man sitting on the throne of the universe today. Ever since the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ continues to be and ever will be fully God and fully man. So when we come to him in the weakness of our flesh and humanity and say, I'm sorry, I hate that. I'm still so tempted. I hate it. At a very real level, he can say, I get it. Do I hate your sin? Absolutely I hate your sin. Am I flaming mad with fury at you? No. You're my child. You're my younger brother. You're my younger sister. I love you. I'm compassionate. And I understand. I understand how powerful that temptation is. I've been there. But it's not this licentiousness and libertinism that says, Ah, it's not a big deal. You know, I did it too. So I know. But where you failed, I was perfect. In the, and this is what's so beauty. You know, Jonathan Edwards said, when well, you really see the glory of Christ is the juxtaposition of two seemingly contradictory attributes, right? He's the lion and he's the lamb. He's the compassionate high priest, but he's also the holy judge in the exact same moment, right? I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. And actually, let's, let's go back to verse 13. Now, Paul's primarily thinking about Gentiles when he's writing this part. So think about that. In the Old Testament, Gentiles would come worship, but they basically had to convert to full Judaism. And only, you know, there, there were different courts of the temple. Gentiles might could go into one court. Women could go into one court, right? Only Jewish men could go into another court, and only the great high priest could go to the most inner sanctum, the holy of holies, right? There are all these walls of separation. Everything was being distinguished against. With all these reminders, you don't really belong here. Ephesians chapter two, verse thirteen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is where you have to really wrestle a little bit, right? Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, what about the law? He specifically said, I did not come to abolish it. And then Paul says he came to abolish the law. So, this is where some people might say, oh, Bible contradicts Paul and Jesus. Can't trust them. I'll pick and choose what I like, throw out the rest. But what do we do with this? How how do we interpret this? Jesus didn't come to abolish that. There's two different ways you could do it. and, And both are probably right and applicable. In the broadest sense, you could say Jesus didn't come to abolish any of the law. He came to fulfill it all. And he came to never abolish the moral law. The moral law still stands. Just because Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us in Matthew chapter 4 doesn't say, I don't have to obey the moral law. I'm free, man. Jesus did it for me. I can do whatever I want. Okay? That's one of the major points of this class, and we're going to get to it even more specifically later. But the moral law still applies for Christians and I'll say this again, we'll, we'll, we'll beat this dead horse a lot, okay? But here, and, and I think maybe this is John Stott. I'm not sure, but I'm quoting somebody else. We are still under the moral law as a commandment. We are not under the moral law as a covenant, right? The moral law as a covenant is the covenant of works. Jesus came under the covenant of works to fulfill it for us, to free us from it. But I am still under the moral law as a commandment to obey it as a way to please him. And guys, listen, just a little side. That's the exact same way the moral law was primarily given to the people under Moses, right? Because it starts off with, I'm the Lord your God who's rescued you from favor. I've already saved you. But now that I have saved you, you don't have to add to it, but if you love me, here's how you love me. Here's how you say thank you. Here's how you honor me as your covenant-keeping God. But with the ceremonial law, Jesus fulfilled it. Right? I mean, we we talked about this a couple weeks ago. All those blood and bulls of of goats and lambs and whatever else, that wasn't really forgiving people, but it was pointing forward to the one true lamb. And when the one true lamb was killed, we don't do sacrifices anymore. That's abolished because it's fulfilled. It's different. So, here's Matthew Henry. To take away the binding power of the ceremonial law, so removing that cause of enmity and distance between Jews and Gentiles, which is here called the law of commandments. So, he's saying the law of commandments here means the ceremonial law contained in ordinances, because it enjoined a multitude of external rites and ceremonies and consisted of many institutions and appointments about the outward parts of divine worship, the legal ceremonies were abrogated by Christ having their accomplishment in Him. So, English in the 21st century, okay? He fulfilled the ceremonial law, and thereby he abolished the ceremonial law. It's not necessary anymore. I mean, this is a really interesting study especially when people start to get into debates about New Testament worship style. Say, let's have a debate about New Testament worship style, but you can only quote and refer to stuff in the New Testament and start looking. You can memorize every verse you find because you ain't going to find many. I mean, it's almost absent. But if you want to say, what was worship supposed to look like in the Old Testament? You could have a big, long debate, right? Because there are all sorts of laws. But what I'm here to tell you is they're abolished because they were fulfilled. Okay. Here's John Calvin. It's a little bit of a long quote. It's good. The ceremonies by which the distinction was declared between Jews and Gentiles has been abolished through Christ. What were circumcisions, sacrifices, washings, and abstaining from certain kinds of food but symbols of sanctification Reminding the Jews that their lot was different from that of other nations. Just as the white and the red cross distinguished the French of the present day from the inhabitants of Burgundy. Paul so he says at some level here's another reason for the ceremonial law. It was a way to show we worship the one true God. We don't worship the false pagan gods. We don't do us that. We don't go to your temple. We have our own temple. It sets us apart. Paul declares not only that the Gentiles are equally with the Jews admitted to the fellowship of grace so that they no longer differ from each other, but that the mark of difference has been taken away for ceremonies have been abolished. If two contending nations, think about this, this is good. If two contending nations were brought under the dominion of one prince, he would not only desire that they should live in harmony, but would remove the badges and marks of their former enmity. Right? When the Civil War in America was over. It's like, hey, all this Confederate stuff needs to disappear right you can't you can't hold on to your old uniform you can't hold on to your own flag we're one nation now we got one flag one uniform right one congress the whole nine yards we're back together we're unified and that's part of what Christ has done here this is Paul's ordinary phrase for describing the ceremonial law in which the Lord not only enjoined upon the Jews a simple rule of life, but also bound them by various statutes. It is evident, too, that Paul is here treating exclusively the ceremonial law. This, is, For the moral law is not a wall of partition separating us from the Jews. You hear that last phrase? It's, when he talks about this as abolished, it's only talking about the ceremonial law, not about the moral law. Now, third part of the law, the civil law. Everybody flip over to who? Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. You know, you do still have people today, <clears throat> a lot of times they're called theonomists, that believe that we should take the Old Testament civil law and do our best to apply it in modern-day America. That, that, that ought to be the goal of Christians. You ever heard of people like this? Okay, Not biblical. Not right. Now, are there principles in the Old Testament? in the civil law that we can glean, that we can then try to put into our laws. Sure, that's a great idea. But when you say, no, no, it's got to be a one-for-one, tit-for-tat, everything in the Old Testament civil law has to be exactly replicated, that's ridiculous, that's crazy. It was given for a certain time, for a certain season, for a certain people. It was the application for them. Now, there were a handful of crimes in the Old Testament that the death penalty was the result. Can you think of what any of them were? Murder, murder. murder for sure. Anything else? Rape. Okay, rape, yes. Blasphemy. Okay, I think blasphemy, yes. Adultery. Now, we won't take the time to go back because I don't think we have to. In the Sermon on the Mount, right after Jesus said, Hey, I didn't come to abolish the law, I can't fulfill it. Remember what he starts teaching? He says, in fact, let me, let me, you, you think I came to get rid of the moral law? <laughs> I came to explain it the right way. Because what you guys have been doing is minimizing it. You think you're a good person, Mr. Pharisee, just because you've literally never shed anybody's blood? Let me tell you what. If you ever had an angry, condescending heart at somebody that just looks down on them and says, you fool, you blockhead, you ought to go to hell for just that. You think you're so self-righteous and high and mighty just because you've never had a literal affair with another married person? I tell you, if you just looked at the woman and thought about having sex with her, you deserve the fire of God's wrath. So, really quickly he said, you know what, we're all guilty, even the best of us, of sinful anger and lust. What do we all deserve under the civil law? If we want to get real technical about it, we all deserve death before God. Colossians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses. Just pause for a second. Why were we dead in our trespasses? Because we were born dead in our trespasses. Well, why was I born dead in my trespasses before I even had a chance to sin? Because Adam and Eve sinned. And remember what the very first... Well, listen, when there was only one rule... What was the punishment? You're going to die. And they didn't die physically that day. They did die physically about 900 years later. But they did die spiritually. And we're born spiritually dead in them. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Which is just a side note on this verse. God's eternal. That means he exists outside of time. That means that for him, time is like right here in his hand. Like there's Adam, there's Jesus walking on earth, that's when Jesus comes back. So God is eternally present to all time. So when God says, I forgive all your trespasses, that means past, present, future. Already forgiven, legally, in the cosmic courtroom of the universe. The gavel has come down if you're in Christ, not guilty. It's not just you're free to go. I think it's Charles Hodge that says you're free to come. Come near coming to the Holy of Holies. Verse 14. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in them. This is beautiful, powerful, life-changing imagery, guys. When the Roman government the civil authority of that day would execute a criminal for something they thought was worthy of the death penalty. And the Rome, listen, in some sense, Rome was brutal. But they did try to be fair and just. They did try to have a law and live by it. You remember there's a time in Acts where Paul's about to get whipped and beaten? He says, I'm a Roman citizen. And they're like, oh, not allowed to do it. He didn't have to prove it. He just kind of claimed it. And they're like, okay, we're not going to whip you anymore. (laughs) So when they wanted to execute a criminal, there would be a trial. Even Jesus got a trial. It wasn't a very good one, right? They had a trial. And then when they executed him, they would put the crime. Here's what. Sedition, treason, rebellion. They tack it to the top of the cross. This is why that man is dying. And why was the Lord Jesus nailed to the cross? Because he's the king of the Jews. Because he's the federal head, the federal representative of all God's people, past, present, and future. He's our king. And he said, I don't want them to be executed, though they deserve it. They've committed capital crimes. They deserve execution. I don't, but I take it for them. Of our sin. The civil law has been fulfilled by Christ, and thus it has been abolished. We're free. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Right, we're gonna have to turn there. Right? Maybe the best, no, definitely the best, I think, if you're going for shortest biblical gospel summary. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The law, I think Luther said, the law found Christ that day a sinner by imputation. Sin had been imputed to his account. He didn't ever literally sin. He didn't become sinful, but it had been imputed. And so it treated him like a sinner. And he got physical death, and he got cut off from intimacy with his father. He got that type of spiritual death, that wrath. And then when we place our faith in Christ, the law finds us, by imputation, sinlessly righteous. And it treats us like a righteous son. Galatians chapter 3, let's go there for a second. We looked at this last week, but super briefly. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you're trying to be saved by your own works, you're going to be cursed. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. And then look down to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Christ took that curse for us. He took that wrath for us. Why? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, skip down to chapter 4. We'll end here. Galatians chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, right, fully man, born under the law. You see what he's saying there? When Jesus came, he came like Adam. Adam under the covenant of works. He came like every human being under the covenant of works. But even more specifically, he came as a Jewish man at the time when they were still under the Mosaic covenant, Mosaic law. There was a a point for that. Jesus came as a full Jew under the Mosaic law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We were never going to get in through law keeping. We had to get in another way through adoption. I just pause for a second. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus have to get born as a little baby? I mean, he literally start out as a little embryo, a zygote in Mary's belly. Nine months of conception, get born, and then live 33 years of life. I mean, why didn't he just like come down, fully man, fully God, you know, a miracle could have happened. Just show up as an adult. What happened for Adam? Maybe do a lot of teaching one day take a nap, do a lot of healing the next day, prove He's God, right? Father can speak, get arrested, get crucified. I mean, knock the whole thing out in a long weekend. He lived a full human life. He lived a full life of sinless righteousness, of being tempted in every way as we are, right? Right? But then there was this proactive righteousness so that when I come before Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit one day in the, in the judgment seat, so to speak, it won't just be, oh, he's innocent, it's white, it's a zero, he's neutral. No, no, no. Look at his account. There's 33 years of sinless righteousness. Perfect law-keeping is attributed to Olin Stubbs' account. Because I of to do that? Heck no. Because the Lord Jesus Christ did it in his place. Makes sense? It's the active fulfillment of the law, not just the passive fulfillment. A couple more verses. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, why hang on to the Greek word there? Almost certainly because when the Jewish disciples heard Jesus talking about His Father and praying to Him, Abba, it's like nobody else prayed like that. That level of intimacy. He's saying, we can pray with that same level of intimacy now in Christ because I can come before Him with that same level of righteousness. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. True believers don't or they shouldn't relate to God like a slave. Or he's gonna get me. I gotta obey, or he's gonna kick me out. I relate like a son. I gotta obey because he loves me. I want to obey. I'm happy to obey. And even when I blow it, he still loves me and he forgives me. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature that are not God's. I've been set free from my slavery. Right? Now I'm a slave to God. But it's a loving slavery. So just one thought by way of application. When you find yourself tempted, right, and you're trying to do positive biblical self-counsel, self-talk, preach the truth to yourself to help you obey, what's the real motivation? What's the real motivation? Listen, there can be multiple good biblical motivations for obedience. We're not going to get into that right now. There's not just one right answer to that. But But the main motivation, the main motivation ought to always be His love compels me. Right? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there is such great and amazing freedom and the life that you have purchased for us at such a high cost. You are so worthy. We are so unworthy. It's, it's almost oppressive to think about sometimes all the rules and regulations the Old Testament Jews had to live under. Praise you for the freedom we have. But I plead with you for myself and everybody listening to this, Lord, that we would... Uh, Never use that freedom as an excuse for sin, as a motivation to abuse your grace, but your love will compel us to more and more obedience, and it will be a joyful obedience, not a begrudging obedience. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless, perfect record of righteousness and obedience in our place, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.